Hello and welcome back to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. This week, I have a one-hour interview with writer Christian Carnouche. He has created a comic book, The Resurrected. It is being launched as a Kickstarter later this month. He has assembled a powerful team for the book. It is being drawn by Krizam Zamora. Now, Krizam has worked on Swords of Sorrow, Black Sparrow, and Lady Zoro, as well as Vampirella for Dynamite Entertainment. And his art would not be complete without colorist Salvatore Asala. The words are added to the pages by letterer Cardinal Ray, and it's all being directed under the editorialship of Erica Schultz. Erica was a guest on a previous show of mine talking about her books, and also she was a guest on the panel that I moderated at Baltimore Comic Con. So if you've ever heard Erica speak on this show, you know that Christian is taking his book very seriously to hire someone like her to help out with the editing chores. And so Christian and I talk about the creation of the book, the Aboriginal history that goes into the background of the story, and we also talk about the creative process, bringing on the editor Erica and assembling the entire team, how Christian is going about promoting the book, we talk about the importance of proper promotion for comics, or really promoting anything for that matter. We also talk about Christian's Star Wars figure collection, and of course questions about rest and relaxation that I ask all my guests. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. February is turning out to be a great month for guests. Great conversations coming up, and this is no exception. So let's get started. My conversation with Christian Carnouche, here now on Creator Talks. Christian, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, Christopher. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Christian, did you grew up in Sydney? I did grow up in Sydney, yeah. I um, spent most of my life here until about eight and a half years ago, where I moved to Holland. Oh, so you're in Holland now all the time. Are you in Australia today, though? I'm in Australia right now. I'm on a holiday visiting my family and friends. Uh, got here last week, but yeah, I live in Holland, in The Hague. I have two questions for you. <laughs> If I were coming to Australia to visit, where would you take me or someone who's not familiar with the area? You know, they, they show me the sights. What must I see if I go there? God, I mean, like a lot of Australians, I haven't really done much of Australia. You know, like Australians are really weird. We travel the world, but we don't really travel our own country. Um, I mean, the biggest sights in Australia would definitely be Uluru up in sort of north Queensland. But uh, I'm from Sydney, so I'll choose something from here. But if I had a visitor here, I'd definitely take them on the Bondi Beach, the Bronte Walk. Bondi is probably our most famous beach and just huge expanse of white sand and beautiful blue skies and packed full of tourists. That's the only problem. But you can walk from there all along these beautiful sort of cliff sides along the ocean and you pass about two or three beaches until you get to Bronte. It's just a beautiful walk. Amazing. Now, how about Holland? Never been there. Where should I go? Holland. I live in The Hague and it's basically, honestly, there's not a lot to do there. It's like the political capital, capital of international justice. So I wouldn't take anyone there. I'd probably go to Amsterdam, which is just amazing. It's very vibrant. If you get out, I mean, it's very famous for the red light district and the legal marijuana, but that, not a very nice area actually. But if you get out a bit further, it's just beautiful, beautiful canals, a lot of culture, uh, very cool people. Uh, can't say good food. I wouldn't have one specific uh, sort of spot to take them. I'd just wander around Amsterdam sort of on a Saturday afternoon and enjoy the sights. Well, you know, let's talk about some of your work, uh, what you're doing currently in Amsterdam. 
and some of your previous work. And I'll let you lead that. It's very interesting. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I've am so I've been about eight and a half years. I'm working at a UN tribunal. We're investigating a crime that in 2005, it was a huge uh, international crime. So I, I'm, I'm actually an intelligence analyst on that investigation. And we're currently uh, in the trial phase. So I'm um, assisting the court trial. But uh, So I basically work in law enforcement. Before I worked in Holland, I, I was in Australian federal law enforcement as an analyst again. Can't really go too in-depth in the exact things that I did, but yeah, it was just, just law enforcement, basically. I have a criminology and criminal intelligence background. Are there any myths that people should be uh, set straight on? Like, for example, is it not always so exciting? Is there a lot of uh, investigation, paperwork, research that goes into it? It depends because I'm an analyst, so I'm not an actual police officer. I work along police officers and I still do things like go to sort of search warrants and interview people. And so it can be exciting in that way. But uh, I would say in the current job I'm in now, there is a lot of uh, research. Back in Australia, it was pretty exciting, to be honest. Like when I, the first few years, I just felt like I was in a movie. I mean, you got police running around, you're off sort of interviewing criminals and witnesses and you're conducting search warrants and it can be, and then you're reading about it in the newspaper and, you know, you're investigating people that you sort of heard of in the media and came pretty exciting. You do have like a secret life that you really can't talk about it. So it's almost like, uh, <laughs> in terms of superheroes, you know, having that secret identity that you kind of keep as a separate part of your life. So yeah, like first few years, I mean, I, I didn't even mention to anyone where I worked or what I did, where I am now. We're not really supposed to talk about it, but... <laughs> Uh, there's been media reporting, you know, I've given Evans publicly at an international court. So I've had my name sort of posted in blogs and online. And, you know, so, yeah, it's not such a huge secret anymore. I still try to keep it on the download, if you know what I mean. I understand. We can talk about safer pursuits like writing, which, you know, has its own risks. And we'll get to that in yes. a bit too when we talk about your comic book, The Resurrected. Let's, well, let's start with your education, your experience and training that led you to take up writing. What's training? I've never heard of that. <laughs> uh, it's hard because I, I haven't had any formal training at writing. I kind of almost fell into it. But uh, I mean, my background, my educational background is I double majored in philosophy, which is kind of important. With my comic, there's a lot of uh, philosophical themes, all these themes I did study at uni. So uh, that's carried on. And then I have a couple of degrees in criminology and criminal intelligence. So nothing really to do with creative writing, but, you know, definitely to do with critical thinking and being able to, you know, string two or three words together always helps. But then about five years ago, I started to, I started to write my first novel and I'm about, I'm up to the second draft now. It's been a really long process and I didn't ever think that I'd write a comic. I, to be honest, I didn't ever really dream of it, but I do collect comics. I'm a huge comic collector and I've got a lot of conventions and I'm always sort of waiting in line to talk to creators and getting them, getting sketches and getting my book signed. And one day I thought to myself, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, I'm sort of here at the convention all day. I'm talking to these guys. I sort of understand the process. I love comics. I have a lot of interesting sort of stories and messages I'd really like to send and tell. So I thought, why not just write a comic? And I sort of started chatting to one artist that I, that I'd met a couple of times here in Amsterdam, an American uh, artist. And I just sort of started writing down some ideas and just sort of, Went on from there and started listening to like as many podcasts I could, books, audio books, videos. Just absorb every single piece of sort of 
education than I could on uh, comic book writing. And now here I am, sort of a year and a half later, although the book hasn't been published yet. We're like in, in many ways uh, do research and analysis, um, but also with Lucky the comic book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't talk about it. But uh, – <laughs> But the comic book collecting, I'm the same way. I go out and talk to people. Although this is as far as I'm going to go. You know, I'm not going to write a comic book, but I will write articles about things, but I'm not going to go that far. I don't have that kind of talent that you have. But tell me about your collection. You have a huge collection. I do too. And, you know, do you recall uh, the very first comic book that you picked up and that was most influential to you? I really don't recall. Um, I was really into comics when I was young, like Tintin and Asterix. Asterix and Obelix, Richie Rich, but I, I don't remember the exact one that I picked up, but I do remember that sort of when I was in primary school, the Tintin, sorry, my wife's here, she'll kill me, I'm mispronouncing it, it's French, it's Tintin, but I do remember uh, just, you know, it was, it was off going to all these amazing places all over the world, and I was sort of in Sydney, and I really felt like we were on the edge of the world, you know, way before globalization and the internet and everything, I felt like everywhere, every, everywhere else was so far, and you know, my dad was also in France at the time, so I guess I felt even further away from the center of the world. And uh, yeah, so I just, Tintin really inspired me. Just, I thought, wow, I would just love to go to these places that he's going to, you know, Corsica and Egypt. And yeah, I guess so I was, I'm still filled with sort of Marvel when I, when I think back to those times. I wasn't one of those guys that grew up with superheroes. You know, I was never into Marvel or DC or, and it was only until about six years ago, I'd say, that I started, uh, collecting comics properly like again as an adult yeah and there's a lot out there it's hard to choose now i uh, the kind of books that i collect now i got i collect everything i'm dc marvel uh i'm reading a lot of image i'm reading all as much indie as i can get my hands on but you know, i have a huge uh sign collection and sketches i have a lot of first uh, first appearances and yeah do you analyze the books when you read them now since you're a writer are you looking at them differently it's terrible. I do, and and I can't. I I can't enjoy them like I used to. I used to. I've read The Watchmen like, god, five times, and then it just takes me so long to read one page now because I'm trying to understand how he managed to match up the panels, and I just I, I don't understand how how those guys were able to put together that story. So you know, I probably shouldn't be reading really good comic books because it just makes me feel really bad about my own storytelling. Yeah, I do. And I, was, and I want to ask you. Um, I've been meaning to ask you. I mean, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and you, you, you obviously understand comics and you're analytical and intelligent guy. How come you haven't written your own? You say you don't have talent, but oh, I mean, yeah. you just you're gonna learn that. You know, it's you can learn to write comic books. And well, I I guess I should never say never because I never thought I'd do this. I never thought I'd work in certain fields I worked in, so I should never make that a statement that I never will. Maybe I will. I just right now it's not on the radar. I mean, uh, one thing I'm doing on a more regular basis, my listeners know, is that I'm trying to write a short blog every week my recommended reading so i have to think critically about the book and make it fun to read so who knows maybe maybe someday um i shouldn't say no i'm not an artist i did take art classes as a kid and eh, it wasn't that good so um maybe i'm better (laughs) at writing writing i've always been pretty decent at as far as being able to string together words and sentences that read well and and flow well but it takes practice as you know there's a lot of work involved uh the first draft is just getting the ideas out on paper then there's the rewrite and the rewrite so yeah uh, but you know even doing the podcasts for me it's i used to listen to a lot of podcasts and i still do compared to the average person but it's hard for me to listen now because i know what goes into it 
So sometimes I'm like, oh, that's amazing. I mean, they did a really good job on that because, uh, you know, I know that can be difficult. And other times I'm like, oh, it's, they cut corners. Oh, come on. <laughs> so yeah. so it, with things I used to accept before, now I can hear things and pick up on things and see questions left from the table or like, oh, that's rather obvious. So now I'm more critical of myself when I talk to people like, well, make it good, man. Come on. <laughs> don't, don't cut corners. Do your homework. And, <laughs> and, and I can't listen to things now. Sometimes it's like, I, I just can't listen to that anymore. Sorry. You know, and then others I admire greatly and I listen to them because I learned so much from them and the way they approach people yeah. and the way they ask questions. So, but I, I won't say never. Maybe someday. I just have to find that thing like you have that there's a lot you want to address in the story. And there's a lot that you want to address in the story. And I will talk about that, I promise. One thing I read was many of your posts on your site, carnoucheproductions.com. You have a lot of great advice about being a writer, about what you need to do. And there's certain points that you bring up. And I encourage people to go to the site and read it because I love it when any writer puts ideas out there and I know you're not doing it to teach people per se because you're learning but it's still great yeah, to see that information and I just want to touch upon a few things and you can elaborate but one of the things you said is that no one loves your book more than you and it's your baby after all but just like putting pictures of your kid on Facebook no one's going to love that more than you <laughs> right because <laughs> it's yours so exactly. you have to have a brave and stout heart when you do this because expect people not to be as enthusiastic or supportive as you and your immediate family are. Absolutely. That is the main point I'd raised. And that is the hardest thing. But the quicker you learn it, the better you'll be, I think. But I mean, when I first started writing, I expected, you know, when I started sort of leaking some previews, I expected all, everyone that I knew, my families and friends to say, wow, this is amazing. You know, you're really putting yourself, because Writing a coin book, it's not just writing some little private thing and no one's going to read it. You're really putting yourself out there to be publicly, not sort of humiliated, but let down and criticized. And, you know, you know how the coin book industry works. You know, there's a lot of sort of negativity and people aren't always supportive. And so, yeah, you're really putting yourself out there to be shot down. And so I guess I, I was kind of shocked at the start. I thought that everyone would jump on board. And when I asked people to like my page, they would all like it and they would all sort of try to support me as much as they could. But you know, I have a lot of family and friends who have said great things and they share my posts and they, you know, they're all said, where, where can I buy a comic book? And I really want to contribute to your Kickstarter. And I've been lucky as well, but I've just realized that I guess, you know, other than my wife and maybe my mom and you know a few other people, that uh, people aren't going to care as much about what you're doing the way that you do. And especially as a first time writer, I mean, no one, is, you know, I post something, people are like, Christian Carnus, who the hell is that? I don't care. You know, what's he done before? <laughs> you know, if my name was sort of Ed Brubaker, they might go, well, I don't care what he posts. You know, I, I love this guy and I'm sure he'll do something amazing. So when you're a first time writer or even a, someone who's only done a few things, you've got to build that trust and you've got to build that audience and you've got to show people why they should read your books. You know, you've got to, you can't just expect everyone to love it just because you're a good guy and you can't just expect everyone to be supportive. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to earn that. And, even if you don't earn trust, you've just got to be fine without it. You've just got to believe in what you're doing and really make sure that you're doing the best coin book that you can do and then just put all of your belief in into it. Not faith because I, I, I don't believe that. It, I'm not even sure if this book's going to be successful. I, I don't have faith in it. You know, I have belief because I believe that I've put together the best I can do. I've got the best art team, you know, an amazing art team. I've really researched my story. I've got a great editor and I really believe it's going to be successful. But that's based on 
you know, the hard work we've done, not just some faith that I'm going to be successful because I'm a great person. And then, you know, it's the, it's the American dream to be successful. You know, I think you've got to earn it. I think I rambled on enough there for you. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. You have to uh, put yourself out there, relax your ego because it's going to get torn apart uh, either by some people in the audience or by a good editor. So you have to put the ego aside and put a lot of effort into it. And one of the things that you do with this book is you came up with the concept of a controlling idea. And one of the things you discovered that it's important to do that early in the process. Why don't you explain exactly what the controlling idea is for a book? A lot of people confuse this with a theme, but it's more like, what is your story trying to tell? What's it all about? I mean, some people might say, oh, it's about a... about aboriginals or it's about death but that's that's more a theme for example mine i would say the controlling idea is uh, how we deal with death defines the kind of person you are to choose a really corny one it's maybe you know maybe someone else could have a story and the controlling idea is love will conquer all what is the message that you're trying to pass on i think it's really important to define this really really early on because you've got to make sure that you know all your your characters your character arcs your your plot that everything everything pertains to that idea because at the end of the book you want your readers to understand what the hell is this book about what's the message what you're trying to say and and if you don't have it defined early then you're going to be all over the place and I have to admit it wasn't one of the first things I did I sort of came up I had the plot characters and I was probably sort of deep into uh the plot phase when I realized, oh my God, I really, uh, like I'm talking about a lot of different things, you know, Aboriginals and talking about death. I'm talking about even sort of identity and, and I hadn't really worked out exactly what is it about. And I just started thinking about it. And, I, and then once I started thinking about it, it became pretty clear what it was about. And so, so I sort of tinkered a few of the plot lines and a few of the character arcs and I made it a lot clearer, I hope. So my advice would be just as soon as you have a few ideas in your head, just work out what your story is really about, not just on a surface level, but on a, but on a deep level. No, you don't want someone to say, what's the point of the book? You know, even though if they follow the story, what's the point? <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And it is tough to pitch a book today. Your book has a certain unique quality to it. As you mentioned, the controlling idea that you have about death and loss can shape people either can fortify them or in some cases destroy them, depending on who they lose and when in their life they lose them. Um, Plus, another very critical part about the story are the ties with the colonial invasion of Australia and the subjugation of the Aboriginal people. Absolutely. I mean, even though my controlling ideas about death, I would say that Aboriginal Australian aspect is probably the most important for me. It's it's, a lot of people when they want to, you know, obviously I have a lot of socio-political beliefs, uh, very strong beliefs. And some people, they try to, they have metaphors in their stories that, that are very subtle and they don't really want to be too forceful with it. I hit this one with a sledgehammer. I mean, I'm, you know, I work at the UN, I work overseas and I work along alongside a lot of non-Australians. I'm just shocked at people that don't, that don't realize how terrible it is for, for the Aboriginal people over here. Like it wasn't just the invasion 200 years ago, but it's the continuing problems at the moment in, that we're having with racism and they're incredibly disadvantaged uh, group and it's their land at the end of the day we we shouldn't have been here in the first place and I think people don't realize how how hard it is right now I just wanted to make that really clear and not just that we didn't peacefully settle Australia that, that we invaded or the English invaded but that it's continuing and still going on and part of that message was also that when I see a lot of Aboriginal characters in comics in the movies 
uh, even in books, they're, they're so stereotypical. I mean, they're always like they're connected with the land and maybe they've got a mechanical boomerang or they can, they're very incredibly spiritual. And I grew up with a lot of Aboriginal people in just around where I am now uh, in the inner city of of Sydney and, you know, they're Aboriginal, but they're just like me. They talk like me, they act like me. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of Aboriginal people use uh, certain Aboriginal words and slang, but what I was seeing in comics had nothing to do with the people that I knew. I put a lot of research into it and I had quite a few Aboriginal friends read my story and look, and even when my artist had drawn up some characters and, you know, I had some friends look and they offered advice and had to make sure they weren't stereotypical. I can do as much research as I want, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy. I'm not Aboriginal. I don't know how it feels to be Aboriginal. I live in a very privileged uh, society, so I really wanted to get the view of um, people that have grown up as Aboriginal. So I think I did a pretty good job with that, and I've had a lot of uh, compliments by my mates, and they said, you know, you're doing a really good job. It is difficult, and perfect scenario, I wouldn't have a white person writing Aboriginal characters. I'd, ha- I'd have an Aboriginal writing Aboriginal characters because they're the only ones that really understand what it's like, but I chose to do it. I want to tell the story. I wanted to get it out there. So I just had to do, you know, I had to do my best. We had the same problem here when uh, Mark Wade wrote the book, Strange Fruit, Boom Studios. And people were, oh, how can you write a, a book about African-American people? And, you know, if you're a writer, regardless of the gender, race, or sexual preference, it makes no difference. It's your job to write in the voice of your subject and do your homework like you're doing and research to tell it accurately so you don't perpetuate the stereotypes or mess up historical fact if it's based in historical fact. And one thing I want to go back to, you mentioned in your blog, many Australians do not recognize the invasion of Australia. It's quite controversial here. You you do have a lot of a lot of people who recognize the invasion and I kind of grew up in a very progressive home in a progressive area. So I didn't really experience that. When I moved overseas and sometimes I'd, I don't know, I'd read the paper and I'd sort of start going through the comments of articles. I was just shocked. Some of the comments and people would say, oh, we peacefully settled it. And and no, it was, uh, you know, the Aboriginals didn't have any structures and they, they didn't really have society built. And so they see it as settled rather than invaded. It was invaded. I mean, there's, the Aboriginals did not welcome did not welcome the English. They resisted. And it's not just that people don't recognise there is invasion, but a lot of people don't also don't recognise how difficult it is to be Aboriginal and that we are living in a white privileged society in Australia. And I know it's a, it's a quite a difficult uh, term, white privilege. When you first hear it, you know, when I first heard it, I thought, white privilege, you know, I'm white and I, you know, I didn't have an easy, you know, I, I had it pretty hard and I wasn't privileged. But then when I started thinking about it more and I started reading, I realised even if you have it hard in Australia and you're white, you have it very hard, you're poor, you whatever, you still have the privilege of being white. You know, you're not going to get pulled up by police because of your colour. You're not going to be looked down upon in some upmarket shop because you're Aboriginal. You're not going to have to hear Aboriginal jokes. And, you know, I grew up hearing Aboriginal jokes nonstop. And I grew up in a pretty progressive area with a lot of Aboriginal people. And there's still a lot of racism. And just to give an example, coming up in a few days, we have uh, Australia Day. So I actually kind of remember the day. I think it's the 26th of January. I've never celebrated it. So it's when Australia gets together and being the drunken yobbos we are, we all, you know, everyone gets drunk and they celebrate the day that uh, we discovered Australia. And this is the day of mourning for, for Indigenous people in Australia. This, this, they are, 
they're mourning now. I mean, they haven't lost their culture. It's a very strong culture. It's still going. But, they, you know, they had the world torn apart. And we had just thrown it in their faces. And a lot of people had started a campaign called Move the Date, where they like, – we still have Australia Day. I'm proud to be Australian. I love this country, you know, other than some issues that we have. I think it's an amazing country with amazing people. But let's just move the day to a different day, celebrate it, let the Indigenous people mourn mourn that day and not have to put up with us celebrating. And actually, just two minutes from my mum's house, there's a – on Australia Day, there's a big Aboriginal um, Indigenous festival. Yeah, it's quite good. I'm quite critical of how we deal with it in Australia. There are a lot of people doing good things here as well, so so I should be fair. Well, I can certainly uh, empathize with your position and understand because the same thing has happened here in uh, the United States where the Native Americans were basically pushed into one little spot and given a piece of land and and just basically eradicated. And even today, and I was at the gym and I was watching the TV while I was working out and there was this hiking show and I like to hike and they were hiking somewhere in the Southwest and I've been there and I love it. I didn't recognize the place and it was uh, bear ears. And I was like, oh, let me look that up later on. And it's in Utah. And apparently it's, it's part of the Native Americans land and our current president wants to reduce the size from 2 million acres down to 1 million Basically, just unprotect some of this land. And I'm like, why? Why? You, we've done enough. Why? It's beautiful land. It, it's very important to the people there. And just to reduce it for what? What are you trying to do? It's, things are bad enough, what's been done. Like, why do more? You need to have more awareness, if anything. You know, it's even like Columbus Day. We're like, Absolutely. oh, I don't want to celebrate that because, you know, it might be, yeah. you, but a lot of bad things, a lot of bad things happen. So I understand. It's the same in the United States. You, I mean, you can't change what happened and I'm not someone who's going to spend my whole life you know weighed down by guilt of the past but if you're continuing those problems and that's what's happening in Australia then that's the issue and we, we can't change the past but we can work towards a, a better future for everybody and in particular the first Australians I want everyone to be happy I'm not just like oh well we just to look after Aboriginals and not white Australians I want everyone to be happy in Australia going back to a lot of the care and attention you paid to detail there's something that you had to change on the first page in the art after consulting with people who knew and who are Aboriginal about what is correct, why don't you tell us a bit about that, how you had to make a little change there in some of the painting, the body painting. You've done your research. You've uh, you've read my blog. You're probably the only person that's been reading my blog articles. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife. My artist is from Uruguay, my pencil. And he's amazing. I mean, he does a lot of research himself. And I really love the way that he's depicted Indigenous Australians. By the way, I should just point out really clearly that may seem like I'm using Aboriginal and Indigenous interchangeably, but it's not. Indigenous basically covers the Aboriginal people, which is like mainland Australia, and then there's the Torres Strait Island people, which is just a bit sort of up north. So Indigenous covers Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. So if I say Aboriginal, it's not necessarily all Indigenous. So just to clear that up in case people make a lot of mistakes, even in Australia with that. But yes, yeah, so he drew the first couple of pages is basically an introduction. It's basically my sledgehammer coming down, going bang, this is what happens, you know, over the last 200 years to uh, Indigenous people. There's one panel where there are some Aboriginal people in Sydney, some Koori people, are sitting around a, a campfire. And initially someone with a didgeridoo, I believe, it, I think that's what you're referring to, is it? Or is it the paint, the body paint? The body paint. The body paint as well, because I think I also, I didn't realise that Sydney Indigenous didn't use didgeridoos. That was it. He didn't draw a didgeridoo. I initially thought I wanted a didgeridoo in there, and I had, had to, and I had to tell him, please don't draw didgeridoos because um, they didn't have them in Sydney. But it was the body paint 
I'd sent Krizam quite a few uh, photo references of Kuri's uh, in Sydney, but he'd drawn the paint. It wasn't sort of crooked and straight. I sent the panels to my Aboriginal friend here, my friend Jeff, and he looked at it and he said, look, I've got to be honest, you know, these guys, they look like islanders, you know, like Pacific Islanders, the you know, the faces and everything's okay, and but just the paint doesn't look Aboriginal. I then spoke to Chris Arm and he fixed it, and I sent it back to my friend Jeff. He said, yeah, perfect. And so, you know, I was really lucky to have that and to have this guy give me advice and, and some other people as well because I guess that's one of the dangers of everyone can write whoever they want and I could write a female character if I wanted to, but you just got to do your research and you've got to have people that you trust to run some of your ideas past, and especially when it's a bit more sensitive when I'm – you know, being a white Australian, I'm a symbol of the oppressor here. So, and, I, and I'm writing about the oppressed. So it's an even more sensitive situation. You know, you see in the Facebook groups, people are like, oh, you can write whatever you want. And who are these SJWs to tell you what to do? And it doesn't matter. But it's easy for us to say that, but it's not easy for an Aboriginal, some Aboriginal guy to see me basically writing his people completely twisted way, you know. So you have to really make sure you respect that. And I really believe that I did. And so if you're going to write my advice not that you're asking for my advice, but uh, if you're going to write the characters that don't belong to your sort of social group or ethnic group or whatever it is, get advice from people that belong to that group. I read an article by a very famous um, Aboriginal writer, and she said, if you have no idea about the people that you're writing, then maybe it's best that you don't write anything about those people. I can't emphasize this enough that you really have done a lot of homework about this to make sure you get it right and being sensitive too. Because there's certain customs and protocols you have to follow in using the names of the dead. You checked in on that. And using traditional stories, too, is very sacred. So you can't just toss something out there. You have to make sure it's okay. And even you mentioned some things about intergenerational trauma. Some people say now, oh, you know, Aboriginals, they have, um, they get welfare and they're being looked after and they have the same opportunities as everyone else in Australia. But I mean, alongside all the racism and that stuff, they have, they have a trauma that's been passed down by generations. We did a pretty good job of trying to obliterate their culture. We, up until the 70s, we used to steal Aboriginal children from their families and put them into white families. And it's now called the stolen generations. But back then it was, you know, we said that we were trying to assimilate them to white society and made it better for them. But that trauma has been passed down from generation to generation. And, and Aboriginals, they didn't write down their, their stories and pass them on. They passed it on through word of mouth. So children now, they're learning stories from their parents. They're learning stories from their parents. So all that trauma of the invasion and what's happened since has been passed down and people are still suffering in that sense. I mean, it's not the same as, I, God, I, was, reading, I was reading something the other day on Facebook, which I should never go on. And a guy that I went to school with, Anthony Mundine, he's a prisoner guy. He's now a really famous boxer. He's a world champion. He's a famous rugby league player. And he's very outspoken. Sometimes he, I don't always agree with him, but about Aboriginal affairs, I really do agree with him. He's very outspoken. He says things that a lot of white Australians don't like. And someone said something about intergenerational trauma and some sort of Aussie dude sort of wrote, oh, well, you know, intergenerational trauma. Well, 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 I... You know, my parents had a pretty hard time, so did my grandparents, so maybe I can, you know, I can get benefits because of that. And it's like, it's not the same thing when your whole culture is under attack. It's not, it's not the same, you know, having family problems or maybe, you know, it's, it's just not the same kettle of fish. Uh, I think a lot of people just don't understand here. Yeah, it's like slavery or the Jewish Holocaust. There is intergenerational trauma there. It's an entire culture, an entire people that's been attacked or subjugated. So that's more along the lines of what you're talking about, not just that, yeah, my parents had it tough too. <laughs> yeah, you worded that better than me. <laughs> 
I wanted to give uh, readers a taste of the story. We're going to talk about the resurrected and I'll mention a few things and I'll let you talk about as much as you want to. I don't want to spoil things for people, but I want to give them an idea of what they're in for now that they know the attention to detail and work that you've put into this. Now it starts out besides the historical context background of the uh, Aboriginal people, there was a nano plague that destroyed Australia. You don't know why the start of the comic, but a swarm of nanobots of flesh devouring nanobots not they don't devour sort of materials or but they completely just 99 point can't remember what i worked it out to be 99.8 or something percent of uh of the Australian population has been destroyed so yes that's kind of how it starts out very uplifting start to the story <laughs> <laughs> on top of that there's this company drexler nanotech corporation and they have this serum that's now illegal that brings back the dead. They're called resis. That's a resurrection serum. So, yeah, that's been banned. So the story starts when Australia's been destroyed, but then it jumps five years uh, into the future where the protagonist is working for the UN. Yeah, at that point, the resurrection serum has been banned. But I don't quite explain how, you know, I'm just teasing it. But there is a connection between the resurrection serum and this company and what happened in Australia, and but you just, you're going to have to read on to sort of understand what's going to happen. And your main player is uh, Kane Duluth? He's an Aboriginal Australian. The present time of the story, he's working in Nova Lucis, which is basically in 2000 and 2037 when the story is set. He's working in Nova Lucis, which is a man-made island just off the coast of uh, – human-made island, sorry. I was very uh, very sexist there. Off the coast of um, New York. and it's, So the UN has moved from New York – to Nova Lucis and just set up its own society. And he works there, Special Division for the Resurrected, the SDR. And they're basically, they're hunting down people who have been resurrected and they're running loose. We don't know why they're out there. We don't know how they're getting the serum. We don't know whether they got the serum when it was legal. Or, but what we do find out is that the serum is still, it's still available on the black market. And some people are still able to get it. So we've got to find out there what happens. And we will see how that problem of people coming back from the dead resurrected weighs heavily upon Cain himself. I mean, there are some things that have happened in his life that he has to make choices about as far as whether or not to use something like that or whether or not it's legal to use something like that. It does have an emotional connection for him, a very deep one. For sure it does. Uh, his wife and daughter were killed in the Australian Armageddon of 2032. So, you know, he's he's upset. He's like, why did my family have to die? And everyone he loved and knew in Australia. And, you know, meanwhile, he's seen people sort of, not a lot of people, but there are still some people out there who, who have been resurrected. You know, there's one point where he says, you know, why do they get a second chance? He's quite an angry guy. You know, he's it's been five years. He still hasn't been able to move on from his family dying. But I mean, the title of the resurrected, it's not just about people being resurrected. It's also a state of mind. It's also about Cain. It's also about identity. There are a lot of sort of metaphors wrapped up in in the title. It's, it works in a few different levels, but that will be played out more as the series goes on. And as far as what we've discussed, that is on your website. So if people wanted to go and see some of the art and see some of the process, it's all there on your website right now. A lot of it is, yeah. It's on carnageproductions.com. And if you sign up to our mailing list, you get an eight-page preview the first eight pages. As soon as you sign up, you get a you get a preview sent to you. You get an email that talks a bit about the themes and the story and the characters. So you get a bit of a feel for the story. It's quite a complex story, I have to say. And you know that can also be a criticism. I am 
dealing with a lot of different issues and, and, and the story, it's not going to be like a 1970s Superman where, you know, nice and easy to read and, you know, you're not dealing with too much. But, it, it, you know, it's going to take a bit of brains, I think, to sort of uh, engage the story. Now, let's talk about the team on this book. You started with editor Erica Schultz. Now, I know Erica. I sat on a panel with her. Actually, I moderated a panel, Women in Comics, Women Creators. And uh, you know Erica. She's talented and she's tough. She pulls no punches. After you've worked on this comic book for about six months, you know, you went to her, hired her to be your editor, and she took you through plot and pacing and getting to the right people. So what was your initial impression of her and your experience with working with Erica so far? She's so tough. But she's the best. Like, it sounds corny, but like words cannot convey how lucky I am to have Erica. Like, I found her online because a lot of new writers, they don't have editors. And you know, I can't believe it. Like, I know some people can't afford it, but there are some editors out there that are charging $5 a page. You know, they're not very expensive. My idea was I wanted to find an editor who had experience in the business. You know, so it wasn't just to, to be a great editor, but also someone that can help me with how it all works and, you know, even help me make connections and introduce me to people. But my first impression of Erica, I mean, she's a gun. I mean, she's full on. She goes a million miles an hour. So I sent my plot to her and I, it was five issue story and I had it all done. I've, I've been working in it for like quite a long time, you know, over six months, hours a day. I had a lot of different people review it, probably about six, seven people review it, comic book collectors, you know, family, friends. One friend's a film script writer. So I thought, wow, this is a pretty cool plot. She's not going to have much. You know, I thought, I'm going to hire her. I don't think she's going to have a lot to do. You know, I thought maybe she's going to get back to me and say, hey, there's not much I can really do to help you here. You know, I'm really sorry, but you're, you're so advanced. <laughs> she's she sent it back and, you know, she got the red pen out, absolutely hammered it. I mean, she had a lot a lot of good to say, but she just ripped it apart in a really good way. You know, I just made me realize from the first second that I had so much to learn and I realized how good she is. You know, she's she's not just a good story writer or editor. She knows how the business works. You know, she can come, she's a pretty straight person, you know. She's, she's very honest, she can be very blunt. And if you're too sensitive and if you don't want to learn, if you don't want to improve, you know, you you might struggle, but she tells me how it is. You know, it sounds like a corny expression, but she tells me exactly how it is. And she picked up a lot of inconsistencies. She helped my characterization with the pacing. She had a huge influence on the story. So now, I mean, I've now had about five, six reviews. I've sent out quite a lot of big sort of websites and they've come back with nothing but great reviews. And every time I got a, I got a good review about the writing, I just feel like, I mean, obviously I wrote it and all my ideas, but I just think Erica should share a lot of that um just when it comes to the writing, share a lot of those uh, compliments because, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. I actually did meet her as well at the London London Super Comic Con, which is a huge convention in London. We were there a few months ago and it was the first time I met her and I've become friends with her, you know, and we get on pretty well. And, you know, we had a working, a working breakfast just before uh, she had to do a panel actually at the London Con. It was just, it was so great to meet her and we, you know, we're having a great time and she's very open. Like I'm the kind of person when you meet me, you know me straight away. I'll tell you everything. I give everyone the opportunity to be my friend. And if you let me down, then that, that's a different story. But she's the same. You know, she's she's very open and, you know, you know exactly who she is at start. And it was great. We're sitting there on a computer and she was we were talking about my story. And I'm like, it was the first time I'd ever met one of my fellow sort of um, contributors, uh, collaborators, sorry, face to face. She got me a creator's pass for the convention and I was going to all her panels and she was talking about, she, you know, she mentioned they resurrected a few times at panels and sort of pointed me out and she was the VIP, uh, her and 
Brian, Michael Bendis, they were like the VIP guests. So I was going into the green room and visiting her and chatting. And, you know, we went out for drinks and dinner after. And she's very generous as well, you know. So, yeah, it's just been awesome. I'm ADHD. Like, I'm, as you can probably tell by the way I ramble on, I, I, can, I can talk a lot. And I get very excited. And and I can also, you know, there's been times where I've been very stressed about my story. And she just can see through my emails that I'm sort of on this bad high you know and one day she said to me hey, hey hey pull it back take a few deep breaths you need to relax you know and I said wow how did she how did she work that out just through my emails you know I thought I was being real calm and cool but uh you know it's not just a uh, sort of story advice it's that kind of personal advice and she's really become my mentor you know and she's introduced me to people she's tells me how the industry works she's giving me advice on my kickstarter she's giving me advice with my pitch advice on Oh, the art. I mean, really, like I should be paying her a lot more. That's one of your pieces of advice in your blog is pay for good artists, pay for good editor. You get what you pay for. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier this week and he was looking for an artist for a book. And, you know, some people offered to do the work, but it was like, that's too low. I really don't want that level of work. I want better than that. I don't want to have to pay for it. So let's talk about your team, uh, your artist on the book, Chrism Zamora. Uh, he's amazing. He's uh, he's from Uruguay, living in Portugal, but I think he's just moving or about to move to Moscow with his girlfriend. So he's he's a well-traveled man, but uh, he's fantastic. Uh, Erica actually introduced me to him. She worked together with him on Swords of Sorrow uh, Dynamite series and with some spin-offs. And he's done a lot of Dynamite work. His art is exactly what I wanted. Look, it's very clean. He uh, very realistic sort of art. No, I like all different kinds of art, but I thought it's my first series. I want some clean art. I, I don't want to take a risk with maybe some out-of-college sort of artist who possibly could be a fantastic sort of artist, but maybe they're developing their style. You know, I wanted someone who was already who already knew the kind of artist they were and, and who had a lot of experience with uh, drawing sequential art. So I think I did really well to be hooked up with Chris. I'm going to have Erica again to thank for that. And and he's been a great collaborator. He, I mean, I am a full script kind of guy, as you can tell by how much I talk. I also... Uh, like to write a lot so I pretty full script and you know I sort of choose the angles that I want and I even go into panel size but he sometimes tells me just you know bugger off you know I think it works better that way and and that's fine you know I always told him that I am a full script guy but I am an absolute amateur compared to him so he's one that's been in his business for a long time and so you know I defer to him really if he thinks something's going to work yeah he's been great to work with tell me about your colorist colorist well I am in love with my colorist, uh, Salvatore Ayala. Probably butchered his name just then. He's he's from Brazil. I met him through Chrisam. Chrisam and him have worked on a few books together. And funnily enough, uh, it was sort of coincidental, but Erica, Chrisam, and Sal all worked together on the Swords of Sorrow on one of the spinoffs there. So I've kind of almost reunited the team, except for me. I'm a bit of a blowing. Did a very similar thing to that I did with Chrisam, I sort of had all the ideas for the color palette that I wanted. You know, my, my wife and I are both really into sort of movies and movies like Moonlight that use colors as symbolism and for themes. And I, I really wrote down, I sort of had each color that I wanted connected to each character according to their character arcs. And he gave back the first few pages, just like nothing to do with what I really asked him to do, but a million times better than what I asked him to do. So he just fantastic. The kind of colors that he does is really the ones I like. I don't like sort of highly saturated, bright, busy colors. He does a lot of very, it's very elegant and he uses colors to convey the emotion of the characters. And it's not just someone who does colors to make the panels pretty, you know, it's not just the aesthetic. He really delves deep into the story and to the mood. Yeah, he's the best. I mean, they all are, but like, 
he's just such a sweet guy to deal with as well. Your letterer, who also came up with your logo, is a famous graffiti artist, Cardinal Ray. How did you hook up with Cardinal? My letterer is Cardinal Ray, who I met through Erica. Stung quite a lot of good comics like Bingo Love and I think a Superman spinoff. But um, Cardinal Ray is my letterer and also did the Resurrected logo and did part of my logo for Carnage Productions. Carnage Productions is basically a skull. I love skulls. I know everyone thinks I'm a hipster, but I really love skulls. And the eyes is CP for Carnage Productions. And he did my friend Shannon Peel, who's known as Demote in the graffiti world. He did the skull. So with the logos, Shannon did the skull part of the logo. Then Cardinal Ray, just the Carnage Productions at the bottom. That looks really great. But uh, yeah, so... Shannon, the graffiti artist, I grew up with him in Sydney and I've known him since I was you know, 12, 13 years old. I actually used to do graffiti. Don't tell my uh, policing buddies, but <laughs> I did graffiti for about 10 years. I knew Shannon through that and he now is like he's world famous. My God, he's, if you Google Demote, D-M-O-T-E uh, online, it's, he's just everywhere. And so I was really lucky to have him. And I absolutely love his artists, not just these famous, but I, I love the stuff that he's doing. So I'm really glad because... Graffiti was a big part of my upbringing and I still love it. And I still love graffiti and I still, you know, follow a lot of graffiti artists on Instagram and every city I go to, I go and check out the graffiti and street art. And so, it was, yeah, it was really, I feel that was quite a personal addition of him to the comic. Now, this is going to start off as a Kickstarter. When do you think that'll happen in February? I was planning for the start of February, but I'm, I'll be in Australia to the start of February and I still have a few things to get done. I'm still doing the variant cover and uh, Ariella Christantina, I think that's how I pronounce her name, who did Insects. Amazing artist. She's going to do the variant cover. She's busy to the end of this month. So I'm going to wait for her to do that. And then we're trying to get a couple issues in the can already before we start. So I'm hoping end of February. But I've just sort of really started the promotional drive for it. So the sooner the better, I think. And I have a lot of people that are waiting now. Or at least I tell myself that I have a lot of people are waiting for the Kickstarter. So sooner the better. And you just mentioned promotion. And the key to any book success is good promotion. And to me, for anything, that doesn't mean repeating the same message the same way in the same space over and over and over again. I mean, frequency is important, but you need to change it up to break through all that noise. I mean, do you agree? Is that what you have to do is find different ways to kind of make it stand out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you see a lot of people, you know, I'm on Facebook a lot. I'm in a lot of groups and you see some people promoting their book and it's just, I get 30 posts in a row because I'm in all the same groups of them posting the exact same thing in the groups. And so I've decided that I'm not going to do something like that because people go, oh man, don't infect my feed. You know, so I'm going to just, I do a few sort of Facebook posts and doing some stuff on Twitter, Instagram. I'm, I'm using a lot sort of the social political messages that I have, pass on information about my, about my book. I'm also... I'm trying to contact different kinds of websites. I mean, once the Kickstarter goes, I'm also going to contact some indigenous sort of media outlets. And yeah, I also try to focus on different aspects of the story as well. When it was National Female Indigenous Day, I kind of posted a, a pic of the female indigenous characters and talked about how she was strong and, you know, how it's kind of thing. So I, yeah, I do try to mix it up a little bit. And like even like now coming on a podcast rather than just doing everything on Facebook, which a lot of people do these days. And yeah, so it's really important to mix it up. It is very difficult as well, I have to say. Although I might say people posting in Facebook's, you know, 30 posts, it's so hard to promote. And especially some people don't, you know, you don't have access. And as new creators, people don't really want to read our books like for previews and don't want to post about you know stories. But 
I've been very lucky in that because I'm working with someone like Erica, I mean, you know, Erica and Chris Arms getting pretty well known. Sal's done pretty big books. Like he just did um, Z Nation. He uh, he just did that series. So, you know, I'm working with guys who are kind of well known and who have done work for some big sort of guys. So I've kind of been lucky that when I pitch the story and I've got a good team on board that sort of I'm not known, but they're known. So it's really hard when you're not known for people to generate interest. So I feel terrible for a lot of guys and not everyone can afford to hire well-known artists and to have great editors and, you know, so I'm not a struggling artist. This is not my full-time job, so I'm pretty blessed. I don't take that for granted. On my end, too, I get a lot of people pitching books and they want to talk about it. And it's hard because I can't get to everyone and I feel bad about that, but I have to pick and choose sometimes and schedule sometimes just doesn't allow it. So... You know, my advice to people who want to get on that platform and what you've done is that you've connected yourself with people that are known in the business and have some experience. And that helps a lot. I mean, that does show that you're very serious about it. And the other thing is, even if you don't have that, have a good story, not just the book and something that differentiates it from the others, but have a good story about yourself. You know, I mean, like you said, maybe going back to the very beginning, it's your baby and it's not more important to anybody else but you, but... You know, have a good story to tell. Be able to not only throw a pitch out there, but talk about what drives you to do this. I give that advice to people who want to get on to shows and get interviewed. That's really important. Think about that because if we're going to talk about a pitch for like 20 minutes about the same thing, people get tired of hearing that. But to have a good conversation like we're having about everything, all the work you've put into it, that tells people a lot about you, your work ethic the kind of care you put into a book. And so they should feel more comfortable at taking a chance on one issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've listened to 30 of your episodes and I do like that you, you interview people, some incredibly well-known creators. I'm like, wow, how, how the hell am I being invited on? But then also you've interviewed some indie people who aren't as well-known. I, I think that's really great. It's a really good mix because I don't want to just hear the same people that I've been listening to all the time because I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I want to hear some up and coming writers and artists. So I think it's really great that you, uh, that you do that. Oh, well, thank you. And that's, you know, I thought about that too. It's like, oh, I should probably reach out to this person. But I thought, you know, I've heard them like three times this week on a podcast and they're doing great and I love it. But maybe people don't want to hear that from me too again. So I like sometimes it's somebody nobody's ever heard of. And I get off the phone and I'm like, that was a really good conversation. I really like that person. That, they had a really good story to tell. It's great to discover that. And I hope that other people discover that too. So we all started somewhere. We didn't all start out famous or well-known or trusted. It was built. Before we get into our fun questions, rest and relaxation, since you've heard the show, you know what's coming. <laughs> so you're I do, prepared. I, I want to ask you about your vintage Star Wars toy collection. When did you start oh, that? I, <laughs> I started that about uh, 2013. I started collecting vintage toys. So I'm a huge Star Wars fan, or always have been. Collected them when I was young. I mean, my second name is Luke. I wasn't named after Luke Skywalker, but I'll claim it anyway. And <laughs> uh, so I just love the movie. And started reading Star Wars comics about six years ago. And so we live in Holland. It's only about two and a half hours in Paris by train. And my wife lived in Paris for like eight years. And so she's always checking, you know, what's going on in Paris. And she saw that there was a vintage Star Wars exhibition about five years ago and she's like hey you know I, know I know you love star wars why don't we go and so we went and i was just and i don't want to say just nostalgia of it because i love it for what it is right now as well but just everything came flooding back and i looked at these figures and I'm like these are amazing and you know i was you know i was reading a lot of comics as well so i'm into that whole sort of area you know toys and pop culture and i thought and she just said to me 
Why don't you collect figures again? And I love collecting. Like I said, I'm ADHD, so I get really into things and I collect and I collect something for a year or two and then I get bored. But Star Wars is, yeah, it's been five years. And so I built up a pretty big collection. I only collect uh, Luke Skywalker figures, variations of them, and only vintage. So that's basically up until the early 80s. And so I have all the figures. I'm not all the figures. I mean, they're so unbelievably expensive. You could never have them all. But um, I started a blog. I think about four years ago, it's called Vintage Star Wars Collectors Blog. And my angle was that it wasn't really about the figures. It was more about the people. So I would interview famous collectors. And like you, I did famous people, but also sort of just new collectors and from all over the world. And like I got to know everybody in the industry. is great. Like, And it's a huge industry. I mean, you have some Facebook groups, 20, 30,000 members. You know, like it's a huge hobby. And I'd go to conventions sort of in the States and in Europe and we'd all sort of meet together and, you know, we'd barely talk about Star Wars, just get drunk and chat. And <laughs> But, uh, yeah, my, my blog did really well because I guess it just had a different angle that it was about the people rather than um, rather than figures. It's, it's gone a bit quiet. I still share a lot of stuff on my page, but I haven't interviewed since about six months ago when I interviewed the most famous collector in the hobby, Gus Lopez, this promoting the comic and it just takes up all of your time it's amazing it's just non-stop i want to get back into that what is your most valuable collectible in your collection so i started collecting before disney bought star wars and the new films came out so things have just gone up unbelievably since then the prices but i would say probably my most expensive one would be maybe i don't know the exact difference but there's probably two or three there's i've got a 12 back in really good condition still on the card back uh luke skywalker farm boy Basically, one of the first figures that was out. I've got that still on the card, and that, that's quite expensive. I think it's about at least maybe a thousand and a half US dollars, maybe more, because of the, of the condition. I have a Brazilian glass Luke Skywalker on the card back, which I'm not sure how much that's worth right now, but that's really, really very hard to find. But all the money these days is really, I mean, everything's gone expensive, but if you get pre production items, basically stuff that they used to before they were released. Kenner were just starting to sort of learn what kind of figures they're going to make and you can get that stuff is astronomical. It's 30, 40, 50,000, maybe more. I haven't, I haven't been tracking prices for a couple of years, but this is big business for some people. So it's insane. Is there an item that you're searching for, one that you want to get into your collection to fill a gap? Right now, because I've, I've got a pretty decent sized collection, I'm not really looking for anything and everything's everything has got so expensive and I'm putting all my money into the resurrected at the moment. So I'm not really looking for one right now. I guess I would just like a, any kind of prototype reproduction, and but the cheapest would be maybe like a card back prototype, and even that would be for Luke Skywalker, who's a very popular character. Even that would be a couple of grand just for a prototype card back. So yeah, at the moment I'm sort of taking a break from that. I'm a founding member and, and a moderator on the Tantive Eleven forum, and you know, so I'm involved every day. And these guys are like my Star Wars family. Like I love these guys, and they've been huge supporters of my comic. We chat every day, so I'm still involved in collecting. I guess I'm just not buying anything at the moment. Well, I'm glad you have that other outlet. What else do you do for rest and relaxation? <laughs> this is really hard for me because <laughs> I'm so hyperactive. All of my hobbies become intense things. Like Star Wars was about relaxing. I've had a pretty stressful career. And so I thought, you know, I collect Star Wars. And at the time, I was very stressed at work. So I thought, you know, I collect Star Wars. But then, of course, you know, I started a blog. I started a Facebook group. So, you know, I helped start a forum. I I just get too in and everything. So it's hard to relax. And even comics, I started collecting comics. And so so I guess if I really to rest, I just have to switch my brain off and go to the gym, my swim, maybe traveling with my wife and 
she has to tell me to shut the hell up every two minutes and forces me to relax. So, yeah, I guess traveling in, in sports. Okay, now you know this is probably the toughest question people get, but you've had a chance to think about it now since you've heard the episodes. You're stuck on a deserted island. What's the one book you'd want to have with you if you could only have the one book? Yeah, this was really hard. I did look at my bookshelf. I couldn't choose my favorite book. I think I came up with a more practical answer. I, I would probably choose In Search of Lost Time, which is uh, by Marcel Proust. He's a French writer, and he was a French writer. And the book is about, I think it's six or seven volumes of 600 pages, and I've read it. It took me about seven years to read. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought to myself, I thought to myself, if I'm going to have a book on a desert, I might as well have something that's going to take me a long time. And the first book was awesome. It was amazing. It was very deep in the writing. It's, it's just, just beautiful writing. But there's just so many layers in this book that I'm just really just too stupid to understand all the layers. I mean, I'll have three, 400 pages of just one conversation at a dinner party. And, you know, my brain would just get distracted by a passing bird or something. And so... Although I read the entire thing, I think I really need to reread it to understand what everything was about. That would keep me going for a while. My guests just amaze me every time with their selections. You know, like I'd be like, oh, the complete works of Bazooka Joe. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't. What's yours? <laughs> oh, I've mentioned it before. It's Tibetan Book of the uh, the Living and the Dying. Have you ever read Staring at the Sun by Irvin, Irvin Yalom? He's a Jewish-American psychoanalyst or something. Have you ever read? Or have no. you heard of that book? No, I haven't. It's just all about how to accept death. And it, oh, it's, it sounds like along the similar vein, but it's a beautiful read. Another one that really was impactful, I read a long time ago, and I'm drawing a blank on the author, who was also a broadcaster. It was Tuesdays with Maury. The, uh, the passing of his mentor that he reconnected with later in life, and uh, he's terminally ill, so he's visiting him like every Tuesday, bringing things for him to eat and talking to him. And as things progress, he gets sicker and sicker and worse and worse. But it's when I read that book, and it was a true story. I mean, it was his personal story of his mentor passing and being there with him. I was like, well, that puts everything in perspective. <laughs> you know, like what's important <laughs> and what's not in life. And I was just like, wow, everything else going on is just crap. It's not that important. Don't let it bother you. This is important. So... And that was, that's a really good book. Mitch Album is the author. That's who it was. He's the one who wrote that. Uh, your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing, when you get a chance to. Definitely say a pastis, which is an aniseed drink from, from Marseille, where my, in France, where my dad's from. It's, uh, you just put a bit of water and ice in it, sit in the sun, pastis, it's amazing. So that's if I'm just sort of chilling out. But if I'm partying in that sort of, Relaxing partying, which I do like to do once in a while, I would just say vodka. Vodka gets me going. All right. Yeah. <laughs> My wife hates it. Vodka really? and Red Bull, I will not sleep. I will not sleep. Oh, oh <laughs> I see. That combination. Yeah, my wife likes vodka. She's okay with that. She likes it more than I do. I tend to like rum, but she likes vodka. And I like IPAs and everything. I've talked about this. And we both agree we like, besides Guinness beer, we like uh, red wine, especially a blend. I'm not doing any advertising here. I'm not getting any kind of pay for saying any of these things. But one that we really, really like is from Australia called 19 Crimes. And everybody I've given it to says this is really good. It's uh, The red blends are great. And have you ever seen how they have an app where you can scan the label? The prisoner on the label starts talking to you and telling you their story in their own voice. 
Wow, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's just kind of virtual reality. It's a, it's kind of creepy looking in a way because it's animated, but uh, uh, it's a free app. So yeah, check that out if you ever get a chance. Just you know, download it and walk through the liquor store and scan one and will. check it out. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I haven't heard of anything like that. <laughs> now that's some good marketing. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, so you're looking for new ways to promote. <laughs> Actually, I should, I, I, that gives me a good idea. There you go. I, it's, this is where ideas are born. <laughs> <laughs> and if you drink the whole bottle by yourself, you don't need the VR app. It'll talk to you <laughs> anyway. <laughs> At least you think it will be. Uh, oh, last question I want to ask you, and a guest of mine threw this out one time, just in conversation. And I'm like, may I use that? Because that's a great question. If an action figure were made of you, what would be your accessory? I have heard this question before, and I would just, unfortunately, and I hate to say it, but right now, a mobile phone. With the amount of time, <laughs> I am, it's horrible. I think these things are just terrible for us. I'm so glad I grew up without them, but my nose is stuck in my phone. Well, the promoting and connecting with people and it's, uh, and learning and reading and mobile phone. Pretty exciting, huh? No, well, same thing for me because I'm on it. And it's not just that I'm like messing around on the phone. It's it's important to respond to people. You know, you don't want to just say, oh, that's nice because it really, again, you're building trust too. Yeah. And you want people to know, yes, you're heard because when I would write to someone and they wrote back to me, I was like, wow, thank you, especially a writer or artist that I admired. It, it meant a lot. Um, but yeah, it's same for me. And, you know, you can't get away from work. I mean, you're there no. 24-7. So if there's an emergency, people can reach you. I'm kind of lucky with the work. Once I sort of leave the office, because I work with classified sort of stuff, it has to be incredibly urgent for me to get something on my phone. But I would have liked to have said surfboard and be like a cool Australian dude, but no, I've never surfed. So <laughs> that's, uh, apologies for that. <laughs> well, when this episode comes out, it'll be close to the release date. Your Kickstarter kicks off. But I that's do awesome. want to thank, thank you, Christian, so much for being on Creator Talks this week. And coming up next week, I'll have a conversation with Chris Mooneyham. He's the artist on Planet of the Apes, Ursus, through Boom Studios. And that's being written by David F. Walker, who wrote the phenomenal Power Man and Iron Fist series for Marvel, as well as the Shaft series for Dynamite Entertainment. Now, Chris has done art for former guest Frank Barbieri on the series Five Ghosts, being published by Image Comics. But Chris and I are going to talk about Planet of the Apes, his artwork on that, plus many other things, so don't miss it. And yes, contest details are coming up soon. I will have them for you Valentine's Day week. I know I'm delaying a bit, but I want to make sure this is done and done right. But to be sure, the questions that I'm going to ask to be entered into the contest will be based on content from the show. So listen carefully. You can always go back and listen again when I put out what the question is to enter into the contest to win a prize, books from my collection, prints, and Creator Talks tchotchkes. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot Devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page 
where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. <laughs>